0: Well, friends, if there is one thing I am not, it is a cook or a baker or anything resembling food preparation. But when I was little, I, I did like to help my mom bake cookies. And of course, my favorite part was using the cookie cutter to carve out the dough into certain shapes like, you know, animals or just regular shapes and things like that. Uh, My kids actually like to use cookie cutters with their pancakes in the morning. There's just something more fun about eating a bear pancake or a star pancake rather than just an ordinary round one. Let me ask you or tell you something about cookie cutters. Did you realize that a bear-shaped cookie cutter isn't just a pattern? It's a promise. You say, John, you have finally lost it. We were talking about cookie cookie cutters on the Lord's Day in our gathering. What are you talking about? Well, a a bear-shaped cookie cutter isn't just a miniature pattern of a bear. It bears promise. Pun intended. It bears promise that when the cookie emerges from the oven, which I'm sure it'll be oatmeal raisin cookies, amen, right? That this shape that will be filled in to look like a bear. It's not just a pattern of a, of a miniature bear. It bears promise for when the cookies come out of the oven. That promise will be fulfilled. It will be a bear-shaped cookie. Well, friends, this is actually the way that the Old Testament Scripture in a sense, is fulfilled by Christ in the New Testament. Uh, Sometimes the the Old Testament makes explicit promises and and prophecies that have direct fulfillment. And that was the case in our text last week in Psalm 2, in the enthronement of Jesus Christ as King. But in so many other cases, when the, the New Testament says the Scripture has been fulfilled, it wasn't direct promises and prophecies. It was actually figures and events in the Old Testament that really aren't just things happening in history, but they're actually patterns that repeat themselves, that have a kind of a, a promised shape to them given the covenantal structure of the, of the Bible. They repeat themselves later in biblical history, specifically in the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And in that way, Christ fulfills the patterns of Old Testament Scripture. Well, friends, such is our case today in our text in Psalm 41. King David and his suffering and vindication form one of these cookie cutters, one of these promise-shaped patterns that is fulfilled climactically in the person and work of King David's greater son, our Lord Jesus. By singing and praising God through Psalm 41, we, the people of the King, learn how to face such suffering with hope and even learn how to emulate the life of our Lord Jesus through faith in Him. So please do turn to Psalm 41. Psalm 41, it's on page 469 of the Bible underneath your seats. Friends, if you're just joining us for the first time, again, welcome. Uh, this is the third sermon in an eight-sermon series in the Psalms. Uh, the last two weeks, we looked at Psalms 1 and 2, the Psalms that are together are kind of like the musical opening to the theological symphony of the Psalms. The motifs, the, the themes of Psalms 1 and 2 of the blessed King who delights in God's law and is installed in Zion, those motifs are run through the rest of the Psalter, including in our psalm today, Psalm 41, which is incidentally the last psalm in Book 1 of the Psalter. Uh, if you'll remember from a couple weeks ago, my strategy for this series is to highlight this big structure of the Psalms, that, that the Psalms are not random pieces of, uh, of sacred sheet music, you know, kind of put together haphazardly. No, they are a carefully arranged anthology of praises, and they're designed to tell Israel's story. They're, they're designed to tell Israel's story through the lens of God's promise to David. It's promised that one of his offspring would be the Messiah King who would reign forever and bring salvation to the world. So Israel's story is our story. It's the story of God's salvation in the world. So I preached the intro in the last two weeks, Psalms 1 and 2, and I'll preach in a few weeks the conclusion of the psalm, Psalm 150. But in between, we're going to look at the last psalm in each book of the Psalter, in each of these five books. These psalms at the seams of the books are often royal psalms. They're they're songs about the coming King. So really what I'm hoping to accomplish in this series is that, that we will see that first and foremost, the psalms are not about us. They're only secondarily about us because they're primarily about Jesus. Let's read Psalm 41 together. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed in his illness, you restore him to full health. As for me, I said, O oh Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. My enemies say of me in malice, When will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me, they imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, Psalm 41 is a fitting way to end book one of the Psalms. You you can see from the superscription above the psalm, uh, right at the top of Psalm 41, that what we just read is a psalm of David, the great king of Israel, as are the majority of the psalms in book one. The songs of of book one so often lament David's sufferings as king. David is, is hounded. He's threatened by his enemies. And so he cries out to the Lord, who then responds by protecting the king and delivering him. Even in David's dark night of the soul, friends, David was like the Psalm 1 tree planted by the streams of water, whose leaf did not wither in the harshness of suffering. He looked to God in his suffering, and he prospered. The, the flow of Psalm 41 is a bit challenging to understand, so let me just kind of break it down for you before we get into the, the nitty-gritty, okay? Okay. Clearly, David is reflecting upon a a time of intense suffering in his life. He he was on his sickbed, and his enemies sought to take advantage of him while he was down for the count. The fact that Psalm 41 speaks of of a treacherous friend who betrayed David, I think tips us off to the fact that Psalm 41 is probably, not for sure on this, but probably set in the same context as Psalm 3 at the very beginning of book 1. The superscription above Psalm 3 tells us that it's a song written for the time when David fled from his son Absalom. Perhaps you know the story. And if you don't, all you have to do is read 2 Samuel 15-18 to this afternoon. 2 Samuel 15-18 to tells us that David's son Absalom tried to usurp David's throne in an all-out rebellion against his father. And that wasn't the only betrayal. David's trusted advisor and friend, Ahithophel, turned against David and became Absalom's counselor during the rebellion. So it seems likely that given this talk of betrayal in Psalm 41, David is lamenting and he is giving thanks about what he experienced during this time when his own son and his close friend betrayed him. David prays for God's mercy, and he expresses confidence that his prayer will be answered since he has sought to be merciful to the weak and needy in the kingdom. Despite sinning grievously at times, David sought to be the type of king that exercises justice for the poor, and he's confident that God would now raise him up and be merciful to this merciful king of his people. Okay, that's really the the overview of Psalm 41. Here's the main idea. Here's the main idea of the text that I hope will be the main idea of this sermon this morning if I'm doing this work of expositional preaching correctly, okay? Here's the main idea. What is true of the king is true of his people. The Lord is merciful to the merciful, even amid suffering and betrayal. A little bit of a mouthful, but what is true of the king, friends, is true of his people. The king represents the people. The Lord is merciful to the merciful, even amid suffering and betrayal. Three points this morning that kind of outline the the way this psalm is structured. Number one, in verses one to three, we see the expectation of the merciful. Number two, in verses four to ten, the plea of the betrayed. And number three, in verses 11 to 13, the confidence of the vindicated. The expectation of the merciful, the plea of the betrayed, and the confidence of the vindicated. Friends, I prayed this morning that God's word might encourage and challenge our hearts this morning. If If you're here and you're enduring any type of affliction today, this psalm is for you, okay? If you find your heart this morning growing cold toward those in need around you, well, friends, this psalm is for you. If you're in this room listening to this sermon, guess what, friends? This psalm, it's for you, okay? And I pray that Psalm 41 would cause our hearts this morning to just in, erupt in love and praise of our great King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at this, these first three verses. The expectation of the merciful. The beginning of Psalm 41 should sound familiar to us, right? Blessed. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. Book 1 ends in the same way the entire Psalter begins, with a meditation on this this blessed life, the life of flourishing and eternal well-being. In Psalm 1, the blessed man, what did he do? He delighted himself in God's Word, and he meditated on it day and night. But now we see this commitment to God's Word in action, don't we? The blessed man doesn't just read and and kind of contemplate God's Word in the ivory towers of of academic theory. No, he lives out the Word. He submits his life to it. As he meditates on the Word, he learns to value what God values and and love what God loves. And he's motivated to reflect God's character in this world. Friends, remember that we learned in Psalms 1 and 2 that, that first and foremost, the blessed man is whom? That's right. It's the future king the Lord promised to raise up to sit on David's throne. It's our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. I don't think we ought to read it any differently here. David is linking the blessed man of Psalm 1 with the blessed man of Psalm 41, right? He wants us to think of this ideal king who will submit to God's law, whose reign will be full of justice for the poor. But notice David David does so he sings this psalm he writes this song through the prism of his own life okay david understands that the pattern of his own life will be reenacted whenever the messiah king is on the scene the coming king will also receive god's mercy because of his mercy toward the poor now the poor in verse one doesn't just describe poverty of resources it's really a more fully orbed poverty It describes weakness or need, both physically and spiritually and relationally. It it certainly can describe uh, financial poverty. But it also describes those who are beleaguered and marginalized in society, who are destitute and downtrodden in all of life. And what does this blessed man do toward those in need? Well, the ESV translation says that he considers them. Literally, the Hebrew says that he causes wisdom for the poor. It's not merely that he himself cares for the weak only. He causes others in society to skillfully do the same. He causes wisdom for the poor. As the king represents his people and living according to God's word, it it has a trickle-down effect, doesn't it? The people then follow the lead of their king in helping the helpless and caring for the downtrodden. Friends, this characteristic of concern for the weak is admirable for any man, but how much more so of a king, right? What do the poor and needy have to offer a king? Nothing. They can't scratch his back if if he scratches theirs. They, They so often cannot pay back what he offers them. Rather, a godly king's care for the destitute is due only to his regard for the Lord. Right? He recognizes that his own sense of mercy should reflect God's heart and God's care for the weak. Friends, the scriptures are not quiet or fuzzy about God's heart to help the helpless. God's word rings out with crystal clarity. Our God is not aloof to the, to the weak and needy. In fact, although he is the one, as the psalmist writes, who creates the stars and calls them all by name, our God draws near to the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. Our transcendent God is eminently near the poor who cry to him. In the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Leviticus instructs God's people Israel to go out of their way to care for the marginalized. Remember those those laws? The Israelites were not to strip their vineyards bare at the time of harvest or or reap their fields all the way to the edge. Why? Why? so that the poor among them could have some sustenance. Deuteronomy portrays the Lord as the one whose heart loves the sojourner and the widow and the orphan, the prototypical needy ones among a society with instruction for God's people to do the same. So what's happening in Psalm 41 is that that David, the king who is steeped in God's word, is one who meditates on it day and night, knows that he, the king, is to lead the people and executing justice on behalf of the weak. And he remembers that God is committed to him in mercy by covenant. And so now he, do, he writes in, in Psalm 41, 1, what amounts to an Old Testament beatitude for the king. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. And how exactly will the king be blessed? Well, David ticks off the ways one by one, doesn't he? In verses 1 to 3. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord protects him. And keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you will restore him to full health. Seven ways that the Lord is merciful. That the the king, as he considers the poor, is blessed. Friends, in other words, David's expectation was that the Lord would be merciful to his merciful king. As the king defends the cause of the poor, the Lord would defend his cause. As the king ensured the protection of the needy, the Lord would ensure his protection. As the king vindicated the weak from oppressors, the Lord would vindicate the king. That's, I think, a a poignant example of this in David's life. is his care for Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Remember that? 2 Samuel 9 tells us that story where Mephibosheth's grandpa, King Saul, had ruthlessly sought to kill David, chasing him all over the country. Remember that? But David remembered his oath to his dear friend, Jonathan, and he brought Mephibosheth, who was crippled in his feet. He was, he was handicapped. He brought him into his palace, into his house, and he treated Mephibosheth like one of his sons. Mephibosheth had nothing to offer David, and yet he ate at the banquet table of the king. Maybe David even had Mephibosheth in his mind when he wrote Psalm 41, 1-3. We don't know, but here's the deal. Here's the deal, friends. What we see in David in part, we see fully and beautifully in the person and work of David's greater son, our Lord Jesus. He is the ultimate blessed one who makes wisdom for the poor and needy. Think of Jesus' earthly ministry. When others moved away from the broken and the needy, Jesus, the king, moved toward them with compassion. He was not repelled, for instance, by the dirty stigma of the leper's uncleanness. Jesus was not peeved at the paralytic who was let down through the roof to interrupt one of his teaching sessions. He did not annihilate the demoniacs at Gadara for their insane rant against him. He did not annoyedly hurry by the two blind men who cried to him in desperation from the side of the road, Have mercy on us, son of David. No, this son of David... This Messiah, our Lord and our God, he always considered the weak and the poor. Friends, our Lord Jesus exercised his divine power to roll back the effects of the curse, to heal and to restore, to bring them to wholeness, previewing how life will be in his kingdom to come when suffering and death will be no more. Yes, Jesus cared about people's physical and material poverty. But that concern was just a platform for him to showcase himself as the solution to the spiritual poverty of all mankind. Friends, we are lost and ruined by the fall, aren't we? And yet Jesus considers us. He looked upon our spiritual bankruptcy with compassion. He rescued us from our bondage to sin and our eternal death by burying that very sin and dying that very death. On the cross, Jesus was broken So that we, the weak, might be healed. He became poor so that we, through his poverty, might know the riches of his salvation. Friends, no wonder this tender king beckons those beleaguered and broken by sin to come to him for rest. Matthew 11. He invites those weighed down by burdens too heavy for them to carry to come to him and to lay their burdens down on his shoulders He is the king who considers the weak, whose heart yearns for the needy, and who is the only one capable of bearing their burden and giving them rest. So it really shouldn't surprise us, should it, that Jesus' very first recorded sermon about life in his kingdom said this Matthew 5 7. It sounds a lot like Psalm 41 1. Blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. While Psalm 41, 1-3 to primarily applies to Israel's King and our Lord Jesus Christ, friends, there is no question that, w- that what was true of Him is also true for us who are united to King Jesus by faith. Blessed are the merciful. They shall obtain mercy. You know, discipleship, friends, is about following Jesus. It's about emulating Jesus. Jesus, being conformed to His image by the Spirit of God. If you want to follow Jesus faithfully, you know what you're going to have in an increasing way? You're going to have a heart for the weak and the needy. You're going to want to cause wisdom for the poor. We, too, will be filled with mercy toward the broken. Our friends, this should be the ever-increasing culture of Redeeming Grace Church. This this little outpost of Christ's kingdom here in the Southwest Valley, the heartbeat of our church should pulse with members who actively consider one another's need. You remember how James reflected on this type of care? That's really kind of the outward working of faith in a person's life. He wrote in James 2.14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can, Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is Poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, friends, faith works through love. Friends, there are just all kinds of ways to do this, isn't there? Let me pick out a couple simple ones in our body life here at Redeeming Grace. When an email from a, a brother or sister to the to the church email Google group lands in your inbox, friends, do you pause to open that email and to consider what whether you can help meet the need? Or are you too busy to even really give it an, a notice, give it an open? As you consider those who have special needs within our body, and I'm not talking a mental handicap, I'm talking a particular area of weakness. Single moms, elderly widows, those struggling to make ends meet, those beleaguered by a mental illness, those grieving the loss of a family member. Is your posture, oh, I'm sure someone else will take care of them? Or do you think, is there a certain way that I can help? Are you an active considerer of the weak? But then what about our posture toward those outside the walls of our church? The destitute and downtrodden who live and work among us. Friends, do you give them consideration? Do you have eyes to see them in your daily life? You say, well, John, I've I've heard you say several times that the mission of the church is to make disciples. Our mission is the Great Commission. Yes, absolutely. 100%. Our corporate mission together as the embassy of King Jesus is to make disciples. It's what we do when we gather on the Lord's Day, right? To proclaim his word and to equip the saints. It's what we work together uh, for throughout the week to proclaim to the lost that their greatest problem, the lost greatest problem is not material poverty or global warming or unjust laws. The greatest problem is their enmity with God. Their greatest need is not financial stability. Their greatest need is God. Greatest problem is sin. Their greatest need is God. The only way back to Him is to be reconciled to Him through the work of His Son. All of what I just said is, is so fundamental to our understanding of our mission together as a church. But friends, when we scatter from this place here in a few minutes, our focus of making disciples is part of another responsibility of being a disciple. Acting all together as a church, our mission is to make disciples. That's like the whole family job. But living together as individuals throughout the week, our call is to be disciples. That's the job of each individual family member throughout the week. And a huge part of being a follower of Jesus Christ is to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. In word and deed. In our gospel and by our lives. So, friends, I ask again, do you have eyes to see the needs of those around you? Do you, for instance, do you know the names of your neighbors? Have you pursued a relationship with them to know how you might love them well? Or are you too busy to see what God sees? Friends, just practically, how can you rearrange your life? How can you rearrange your calendar, maybe even your budget, to physically and spiritually benefit the distressed and downtrodden. You know, if you've been here around Redeeming Grace for long, you've noticed that we don't have a ton of church programs. We, we haven't organized a ton of activities and events to try to reach the community. And, and some of that honestly has to do with the limitations of a small staff, right? There's only one of me. But we'll never be, I don't think, a church with a with a calendar packed full of a ton of programs. And you know Why? Because we want to make sure that you, our church family, have the time and the energy to do these very types of things that we've been talking about. That there's bandwidth in your calendar to weave your life toward the priority of considering the weak and reaching the lost. So don't think to yourself, well, I don't see Redeeming Grace organizing around X, Y, Z, so it must not be important. Oh, no, friends. Far from it, we're we're going to organize, you know what we're going to organize around? We're going to organize around our central mission of making disciples. And that's mainly going to look like a robust proclamation of the gospel and the equipping of the saints here on the Lord's Day. But when we scatter, our individual responsibility to be a mercy-filled disciple of King Jesus should propel all sorts of ministry and good works and gospel work toward those around us blessed is the one who considers the poor as with the king so with his people number 2 the plea of the betrayed the plea of the betrayed in verses 1 to 3 david contemplates the ways in which god is merciful to his merciful king and with that expectation kind of in david's hip pocket he now prays to the Lord for a fresh, fresh experience of that mercy in his hour of need. Notice that in, these, in the first three verses, David spoke of the blessed man in the third person. Did you notice that? But now starting in verse 4, he switches to speak of himself in the first person. And this, this makes total sense. Remember the cookie cutter, right? The promise-shaped pattern. David's experience adds content to the uh, the kind of our corporate anticipation of what we expect the Messiah to experience and how we expect him to behave when when he's here. Notice verses 4 to 10 are bookended, aren't they, by David's plea. Verse 4, O Lord, be gracious to me. Verse 10, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me. It's a plea for mercy. You know, if David were here with us this morning, friends, I don't think he would want us to whitewash his character as if it was something it was not. David was a profound sinner, wasn't he? He committed what at best can be described as adultery with Bathsheba and at worst as a a gross abuse of his kingly power to take her sexually. And then he compounded his sin by sending Bathsheba's husband Uriah to the front lines of battle where he he was killed. But what David would want us to see is that his life wasn't just marked by profound sin, but by a a profound repentance and a deeply rooted sense of his need for God's mercy. Whenever David was in trouble, what did he do? We don't see David relying on his own resources. We instead see him calling upon the Lord, his only source of help. Verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. Friends, David connects his physical weakness to his sin. And, and if, if this psalm, Psalm 41, is indeed in the context of Absalom's rebellion, it's possible that the sin David references here is his sin with Bathsheba. Since Absalom's rebellion was part of, the, of, of God's discipline, the consequences for that sin. Regardless of what sin it is, David knew God does not owe me anything. God did not owe David mercy simply because David was merciful. Rather, he knew God's gracious disposition toward him was entirely based on unmerited grace. In verses five to nine, David recounts to the Lord his desperate situation caused by his enemies. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perished. I think there are, Biblical theological connections all throughout this. Remember the Lord in 2 Samuel 7 had promised David a great name, just like he promised Abraham a great name, an enduring dynasty through this coming Messiah. But here the enemies want to blot out his name from the annals of history. They want David and his name to die. They're marshaled against the Lord and against his anointed, Psalm 2. David starts to, starts to hint at the, at the hypocrisy and the duplicity of his enemies in verse 6. Look at verse 6, and when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. So so what is he saying? He's saying that these enemies, they, they say the right things to David in private, right? But when they go out, they change the story to others. You can imagine these enemies visiting David's sickbed, right? And saying things like, oh, we're so sorry to see you sick, O king. We've been praying for you. and We're going to keep praying for you, right? We hope you get better really soon, but don't worry about anything. We've got it under control. We're taking care of things while you're out. But they weren't hoping David would get better. They were hoping he would die. And when they left his presence, they were saying things, you know, you can imagine them saying things like, oh, I'm, I'm not sure the king's going to make it. But isn't it, isn't it kind of time for a change at the top anyway? They were duplicitous. They said one thing to David and an entirely different thing once they left his presence. Verse 7 says, All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. Again, you can hear the resonances of Psalm 2, can't you? The people's plot against the Lord's anointed. In verse 8, David depicts his enemies saying, A deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise from where he lies. The Hebrew here literally says a word of Belial is poured out against him and he will not lie or arise from where he lies. Belial is in B-E-L-I-A-L. Okay, if you're not familiar with that word, no problem. It's basically an ancient word that refers to the satanic or the demonic. The accusation here was that David suffered on his sickbed because of the influence of Baalio, the demonic, in his life. It was just this sinister, dark accusation. These enemies were literally hell-bent on sabotaging David's influence and their desire for his demise. And this animosity against David extended even to those who professed to be on his side, to those who owe him loyalty. Look at verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It, It wasn't just those who David expected to ally themselves against him that were attacking him, but someone whom he least expected. It was someone David trusted, someone he had extended his own hospitality and home to, which created an obligation of loyalty in the ancient world and even in the, in the modern Middle East. I mean, hospitality is a big deal. This friend, again, likely Ahithophel, David's trusted counselor and advisor, spurned David's trust, and he, he lifted his heel against him. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean, to lift his heel? Well, it's this, this image of... Of, of a combatant lifting his heel, his foot, ready to stomp, to crush the adversary's head. Now, friends, where have we seen this image before in the Bible? That's right, Genesis. Genesis 3.15, the first promise of God's salvation, that the offspring of woman will bruise or crush the serpent's head who will in turn bruise the heel of the offspring of woman. It's this this image of total victory for the coming Savior. But here, here this image is reversed, isn't it? It's the seed of the serpent. It's the enemy trying to crush the head of the king. Friend, you remember that that line from Shakespeare's uh, Julius Caesar? When Caesar realizes that his best friend Brutus is among the conspirators who tried to assassinate him. What did he say? It's one of the most well-known lines in literary history. Et tu, Brute? Even you, Brutus? It's just this moving line because it it capsulizes the sharp sting of human betrayal. Friends, there are a few things more painful in the human experience than the betrayal of a friend. The opposition of adversaries is one thing. The treachery of a friend is a whole other level of pain. If you've ever gone through this, you know what I'm talking about. We get a sense of how badly this episode hurt David later in the Psalter in Psalm 55, In Psalm 55, 4, David writes about his heart being in anguish. And then in verse 12, he says why it's in anguish. He writes, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. You can feel the emotion of David's pain. Friends, a consistent theme in King David's description of his sufferings in in book one of the Psalms is the piercing pain of betrayal. His enemies gain the upper hand through the treachery of his friend. And of course, it's here in verse 9 that we see the pattern of King David's sufferings explicitly fulfilled by his messianic son, our Lord Jesus Friends, if you were paying attention earlier when Casey read from the Scripture in John 13, during that final Passover meal, that first Lord's Supper, Jesus said that Judas's kiss of betrayal fulfilled Psalm one nine, John 13.18, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he, that I am the Messiah. Again, Jesus fulfills the cookie cutter, this promise-shaped pattern of Psalm 41.9. Jesus repeats David's experience at a deeper climactic way. King David's sufferings, including his betrayal by Ahithophel, was a type, it was a model of his greater son, the, the promised Messiah. Friends, this does not mean that, that everything that happened to David must find its echo in Jesus. But The New Testament understands many of the broad themes of David's life in exactly this way, especially those that focus on his suffering. Friends, I think it's at this point in the text that we should just once again stand in stunned silence and marvel at Jesus' love for us. Because although Jesus repeats the pattern of David's suffering, there is a grand canyon worth of difference Between the two. David David suffered in part because of his sin. Jesus, though sinless, suffered for your sins and mine. David's sufferings at the hands of his enemies were unexpected. He didn't always understand them. Jesus came into this world for the express purpose of suffering at the hands of his enemies. He predicted his violent death at the hands of the religious leaders and he even predicted ahead of time his own betrayal by Judas, one of his 12 disciples. And yet he walked the road of suffering anyway, willingly to rescue and forgive us. Friends, if if our Christ was not spared from the pain of suffering and betrayal, neither should we expect to be. The servant is not greater than his master. In fact, when we walk the road of faith-filled obedience, we become sharers in the sufferings of Christ. The king's sufferings are often embodied by his people. Perhaps you, friend, have suffered in this way. You've experienced the betrayer's kiss when a family member or friend or co-worker turned their back on you. Maybe even because of your confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. friends, one of the beautiful things about our gospel is that we have a Savior and King who doesn't just send out His condolences or a best wishes card in the face of such suffering, but one who knows our pain and our hurt because He too suffered in this way, yet without sin. He's a faithful high priest who intercedes for us even as we pray for healing and relief. Friends, I'm thinking this morning of uh, those of you who've suffered an unjust divorce or physical and sexual abuse by a family member or something lesser like the defamatory lies of a coworker trying to curry favor with your boss. Our friends, these are deeply painful and traumatic experiences. But the good news this morning is that you can suffer with hope knowing that you have a compassionate king who bore up under these same types of suffering so that you might have hope and help in your hour of need. Friends, this is not just theoretical theology in Psalm 41. This is massively practical theology. The only way to know comfort, when you look into the black abyss of your affliction, even the type of mistreatments that, that will not have closure here on this earth, The only way to endure that black night is to look at Jesus and to let your burden rest with him. He is a sympathetic and gentle savior who takes up your cause. As you walk the road of obedience in your suffering, you can be confident that the road that you travel with him leads to glory and vindication and relief. That brings us to point three, the confidence of the vindicated. David closed his prayer in the same way he opened it. He cried out to the Lord for his grace. He asked to be raised up so that he might repay his enemies. Now, I'm sure when we read that, some of you might have been confused by that request. Like, is that a model for us? Can we, you know, uh, ask the same thing that we can take vengeance into our own hands? No, no. Remember that David prayed in his role as king. He had been granted the power of the sword, so to speak, over Israel to exercise justice in the land and to enact judgment on behalf of the Lord on the wicked. Uh, this week, we I sent out an email about our application lunch on Fridays. We're starting to do that now. If anyone is invited, we meet over at K-Pasa over on Estrella. Uh, when there's room at least, and we discuss applications together from the sermon text. Brothers and sisters are welcome and alike. One of our members responded to my email invitation on Friday saying that he couldn't come, but he wanted to give his thoughts on this verse. And he wrote in this email, I thought it was good enough to share. He wrote in the email, perhaps this request to repay his enemies flows out of verse 5 and the enemy's desire for David's name to perish. God's name is covenantally tied to David. And so the Lord's name seems to be at stake as well placing David's request for vengeance in line with God's will. Whoo! Hallelujah. That is exactly right. That is exactly right. This was not a vigilante request, but a covenantal, kingly request for triumph over the king's enemies and therefore over God's enemies to vindicate God's name. And David was confident in the Lord's answer to his prayer. His expectation was that God would be merciful to the merciful and deliver him. Look at verse 11. By this I know that you delight in me. My enemy will not shout and triumph over me. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and you have set me in your presence forever. Friends, at the end of the day, you know what happened to Absalom and Ahithophel? They both died incredibly inglorious deaths. Both were hanged one accidentally and one on purpose. The scripture tells us that Absalom died when his long hair got caught in a tree when his horse rode underneath it. Ahithophel hung himself in shame, anticipating his betraying counterpart, Judas, who after betraying Jesus into the hands of his enemies went out and hung himself. The Lord upheld David because of his integrity. David had confessed his sin and he called out to the Lord for mercy, David was merciful to the weak and so God honored his request. He vindicated the king. He, he raised him up from his sickbed and he installed him once again on the throne. At the end of verse 12, David speaks of his confidence that the Lord will cause him to stand before himself forever. Friends, this is certainly true of King David, right? He is saved by grace through faith and the promises of the coming king. But by now... I hope you're tracking with this promise-shaped pattern that points to Jesus, right? What we see faintly in the vindication and triumph and eternal joy of David, we see in blazing glory in the resurrection and ascension and kingly reign of Jesus Christ. Jesus' enemies, like Judas, like the religious leaders, thought they had the upper hand. They counted him out. They said of him when they... Put him in the tomb. He will not rise from where he lies. But on the third day, friends, the father demonstrated for all eternity that Jesus was his beloved son in whom he was very well pleased. Friends, by this, Jesus knew, in the words of the psalm, by this, Jesus knew that God delighted in him. His enemy will not shout in victory over him. The betrayer lifted up his heel against Jesus. But when the third day rolled around, friends, it was the king with his foot on the crushed head of the deceiver. He crushed death to death, and he secured resurrection life for all who would trust in him and bow the knee to the king. Friends, do you want to know why we can be so confident in this grace-filled expectation of Psalm 41.1 and Matthew 5.7? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy— You want to know why your behind-the-scenes deeds of love on behalf of the weak will be shouted from the housetops one day? Friends, you want to know why you can be so sure your betrayal and suffering in this life will be made right in the next? You want to know why your name that's been shamed with Jesus's will be vindicated for all the world to see one day? Because, my friends, Jesus has risen from the dead. And he is set in the presence of God forever as the conquering king. And one day he's going to come back and publicly, publicly triumph over his enemies and usher in the eternal reward of his suffering people. So friends, if you're discouraged this morning, lift your eyes in hope. Vindication day is coming. Suffering saint, oh friends, I hope you'll endure your affliction with joy. Because glory awaits you. Just as God upheld King David and King Jesus, He will uphold you. He upholds you with His hand of righteousness. And He will set you in His presence forever. One of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible is Romans 16.20. I'm going to close with this. You can turn there if you want. Romans 16.20. Paul, the Apostle Paul, writes this verse, by the way, in the context of enemies within the church. False teachers had arisen within the church. And he's encouraging the church at Rome toward an enduring faith and obedience. And what does he say to encourage them? What might give them peace in the midst of such hard conditions when enemies arise? (laughs) He writes in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Again, friend, in all of this, what is true of our king is true of all who are united to him by faith. We will share in the triumph of King Jesus. Just as our king crushed the head of the enemy, so will we one day reign with him in glory with the head of Satan underneath our feet. Oh, friend, let this truth fill you with peace. This morning. Let it get you up on a Monday when you have the Monday blues and serve the Lord with hope. Verse 11 is a fitting response to Psalm 41 and the King's victory. It's a fitting close to all of Book 1. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we we honor you and we praise you this morning as our merciful, humble king. Oh Lord, you're not like the type of kings on this earth that exercised your authority and your kingship by using those underneath you for your own good. You're the type of king who humbled yourself and poured out your life for the good of your people. Even to the point of death on the cross. And it's it's because of that very death that we're so confident, as Philippians 2 tells us, that therefore God has highly exalted you and given you the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, everyone will bow. They will bow the knee and they will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, Lord, we await that day of public vindication when you will return. And until then, Lord, may we carry with us this hope of Psalm 41, that when we pray to you, our merciful God, as your people through faith in Christ, we can be confident to share in your victory. It may not look like we do in this age, But the Beatitudes are not Beatitudes for this age only. They are Beatitudes for the age to come. So, Father, as we're merciful to those around us, we're confident that you'll be merciful to us in this age and in in glory when we reach heaven. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.